Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The most important thing you can do, and it's something you can control, is be consistent because you can control that. And people are watching you. And even if they're not listening to the evidence, they're watching you. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, my name is Steve Lowry, and as always, I have my uh, dynamic co-host, Yvonne <laughs> Godfrey. Dynamic, uh, thank exactly. you. <laughs> I told you, I'm, 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 working the, uh, I'm working the thesaurus very hard. <laughs> uh, how are you doing today, Yvonne? I'm good, how are you? Good, good. I am, uh, I, I am excited about our guest. I am excited about this case that we're talking about. It's just a fascinating case, so I'll, I'll just get right into it. Our guest uh, today is Tab Turner. Tab is, uh, his firm is Turner & Associates, and their website is www.tturner.com. Tab is, is from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, but he also has offices in Texas, New York, and San Diego. And um, and I'll give a little background on you, Tab. You've um, you have got uh, uh, quite the list of accomplishments. And I'll tell you, uh, when I first started out practicing law, I joined um, a group called AIEG, and I'm still an active member of AIEG, which is a, a group of lawyers who do who uh, focus in uh, auto products cases. And uh, and the way I always remember hearing about Tab was that you know. Tab started the uh, essentially the rollover litigation uh, involving SUVs, especially the Ford Explorer, uh, was basically the uh, driving force behind the uh, Ford Firestone um, uh, litigation that in, in involved uh, a number of Firestone tires being uh, recalled and um, has just been a real uh, force in the in the legal community and and a force for change. Uh, Tab has twice been named uh, Outstanding Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Trial Lawyers for Public Justice, once in 2001 for his work in the Ford Firestone case involving his client Donna Bailey, and then again in 2015 uh, for uh, work he did on a case called Lindy versus Arab Bank, which is actually the uh, case we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, Tab actually, we, we, we have... Uh, Several guests who have written books, Tab has actually had a book written about him. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called uh, Tragic Indifference, One Man's Battle with the Auto Industry Over the Dangers of SUVs. And Tab, uh, I mean, Tab, your list of accomplishments is, uh, is impressive to say the least. Well, thank you. Tab has had a number of uh, multi-million dollar verdicts, including uh, the largest uh, um, single wrongful death verdict uh, in the U.S., I believe, $132 million for the death of uh, Brian Cole in a, in a, against Ford Motor Company. Uh, Brian was the, an outfielder, uh, outfielder for the New York Mets. And Tab has been uh, named as a top 100 high stakes lawyers and um, has uh, just um, had a fantastic career. And I know he's, he's got many, uh, many other great things to accomplish. But Tab, Tab welcome so much uh, to the uh, podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So, Tab, uh, one thing I noticed from this case that we're about to talk about is that you don't believe in taking on the easy cases, it looks like. You, uh, you like things that are a little bit difficult. 
<laughs> Another way of saying that is I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, in addition to taking on, uh, uh, you know, Ford Motor Company and Firestone, uh, you know, back really uh, before anybody was taking them on for, for at least the rollover claims, uh, you know, and, and I've had the, uh, I guess, uh, pleasure or displeasure of, uh, trying cases against Ford and, uh, and, you know, uh, no matter how they turn out, it's always a, uh, involved affair. We should say it's, uh, it's never easy. Yeah. Um, yeah, always a war. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this case of Lindy versus Arab bank. And, uh, I mean, Tab, this is, uh, just a fascinating case and a, really important case from what I can tell. Just to give some background, uh, this involves a case under the Anti-Terrorism Act uh, against Arab Bank for uh, essentially uh, giving financial support to Hamas uh, during the second intifada, where, which resulted in a series of attacks or bombings. Uh, and um, the number of plaintiffs, it looked like uh, from what I could tell, maybe 300 plaintiffs in that case uh, of U.S. citizens who had been um, uh, attacked overseas uh, during some of these Hamas attacks. And this case was to hold Arab Bank accountable for their work in, um, in, in essentially uh, giving resources, helping uh, fund uh, Hamas. And um, it's, it's really, uh, Tab, just a fascinating case. Uh, I will say, so the, this case was tried back in uh, 2014 in the Eastern District of New York, uh, and it resu resulted in a um, across-the-board liability finding against uh, Arab Bank. And then it sounds like, Tab, that the, before the case could be tried to damages, there was a, uh, some sort of a settlement agreement or something that, that where you stipulated to the amount of $100 million in damages so that Arab Bank could then go up on appeal and then depending on that appeal, the cases would be resolved in, in some fashion. Is that, is that fair to say? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good summary of the case. The, the settlement was much more complicated. Um, basically, <laughs> sure. the case was bifurcated and, uh, between liability and damages. And so the first trial lasted a couple of months in New York. And um, uh, as you said, we got a verdict in our favor on all 24 attacks. There were 24 separate terror attacks involved in the case, and each one of them we contended that Hamas was responsible for and that their bank had provided material support to Hamas for all 24 of those attacks in violation of the Anti-Terrorism Act. All 24 attacks occurred in Israel over a three-year period. Uh, there were a total of, if you count all of the family members, there were a total of 596 oh. plaintiffs in the case. Um, each one of them were in somehow, in some way, involved in one of the 24 attacks. And then once we got the verdict against Eric Bank, the judge decided that he wanted to come back about a year later and start back-to-back -back trials. And in essence, he was going to try four attacks at, at a time for damages. We would have one trial involving four attacks. 
the jury would award damages, and then we would immediately start the next trial for the next four attacks. And we were just going to do back-to-back trials until we finished. And the case settled shortly before that for a um, what, what amounted to a high-low. Right. Uh, the numbers were all confidential. Uh, but basically, the bank agreed to pay um, X amount of dollars, which was in the billions. And under any set of circumstances, regardless of what the ruling on, they wanted to appeal one issue, right. which was the sanctions issue. And we told them they could do that. But if they lost that issue, then the settlement basically doubled. And so um, they took a chance. Um, we made them pay three quarters of the settlement to the plaintiffs prior to the appeal, and they could hold one quarter in the bank account and trust. Uh, pending the outcome of the appeal. Okay. And then they were required to post security, um, uh, but what in essence amounted to a bond in case they lost the appeal. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've got just a number of questions for you. And, and we do want to make sure that we explain to our listeners some of these things. So when we throw out terms like high, low, uh, essentially what we're talking about is that the, the case was resolved that if it let's just say the number was $1 and $10, the low being one and the high being $10. Uh, if the case was won by the plaintiffs, then $10 would be the number. And if the case was lost by the plaintiffs and, or won by the defense, then $1 would be the number. That, In a very simplified terms, that's what a high low is. Um, Correct. And it sounds like that's... Now, was, this was a little bit more complicated in, because we also had, had to account for what if neither one of us won? Right. In other words, what what ultimately happened was um, the court never even reached the issue Arab Bank wanted to appeal. Right. Instead, the court found out that the case was before the Second Circuit uh, pursuant to a settlement agreement. And we, we had to disclose it to them. And once they did, they basically... Uh, sent it back for further fact-finding. And so we had accounted for that contingency in the settlement. So there, in essence, were three amounts of money. There was a low, there was a high, and there was a medium. Okay. Got and, it. And so the medium amount would have been basically for no finding at all on, that, on the sanctions issue? A medium finding um, constituted a remand. Okay. So if we won the appeal, we got the high number. If the case was reversed and dismissed, we got the low number. And if they remanded it for any reason, the middle number applied. Right. Okay. Okay. Got it. And just in terms of like when you're, you know, with these bifurcation issues and obviously sort of a creative um, settlement agreement, I mean, at this point, did you really have a roadmap at all for what it for what an anti-terrorism act case would look like? Um, not really. You know, there had been some anti-terrorism litigation. Uh, if, if you go back to the creation of the anti-terrorism act, it was actually created under uh, President Clinton back in the early 1990s. That's when it was passed. And um, nobody really litigated under the Anti-Terrorism Act, except in 
some spotty, what I refer to as foreign sovereign immunity cases, where people are suing states that sponsor terrorism, states like Iran or Syria, um, Russia in some cases, uh, which are basically default judgment cases because those defendants don't ever show up. Right. You just sue them, you serve them, uh, they object, they don't appear. Uh, you go get a default judgment against them. Uh, you try your case on damages. You get a judgment against them for, you know, two hundred million dollars. Judge says, "Good luck collecting it." Right. And so nobody had really ever tried a corporation, a case against a corporation, which was um, sort of the brainchild of this litigation. Um, Gary Oson, who was my partner in the litigation. Uh, was the brainchild of this um, whole concept and idea and approached me about trying the case um, for him in about 2005 or 2006, something like that. Okay. And, uh, and the, the case took, you know, another seven years before we ever got it, actually got it to trial, went up to the Second Circuit twice went to the Supreme Court once. Um, they, they fought tooth and nail, but to answer your question, no, nobody had really ever tried one of these cases. Uh, this was sort of a, um, a um, uh, first attempt at using the Anti-Terrorism Act uh, against corporate America right. for providing material support to either designated or known terrorists. Right. 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 So, you know, one of the, and you may have just answered this tab, but I, I was going to ask, I mean, how do you uh, get involved in litigation like this in, in the first place? I mean, it's uh, uh, highly specialized. I mean, it's and the work you guys did is uh, fantastic. How, how did you get involved in it? Well, Gary's law firm is out of New Jersey and uh, they are all members of the Jewish community. And all of our plaintiffs were members of the Jewish community who for either religious or family reasons, or just vacation, were visiting Israel during um, this three-year period that these attacks um, took place. Each one of them just happened to be, you know, in a bus or a restaurant or a bar or a club or a hotel that got attacked as part of the Second Intifada. Uh, I happened to have been referred a case involving a geo tracker which was a sport utility vehicle made by general motors in a partnership with suzuki where a family from the jewish community had pretty much been wiped out in texas in a rollover and um, gary referred the case to me and then after the case was over gary asked me if i ever did uh, cases other than automotive cases and i told him i did but i was very picky about what I got involved in just simply because I was not a large manpower law firm. Right. And uh, I agreed to sit down with him and look at this case. And I looked at it and told him, yeah, I'll get involved in this. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need 
help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions they can help your clients in all aspects please reach out to forge consulting you can find them at forgeconsulting.com and when you reach out to forge consulting please mention the great trials podcast again that's forgeconsulting.com gosh i just i mean it makes me well two sort of (laughs) personal things that that made me think of number one is how badly i wanted a geo tracker when i first got my driver's license and thank thank goodness my parents were like no (laughs) Um, but the the second thing is i way back um before i went to law school i worked at motley rice when they were working on um um Mm -hmm. doing the saudi princes for for um funding 9-11 and I did not work on that team. I was not personally involved in in that case, but it it was clear how much work, how many documents, how much detective work was that. Oh, yeah. I I just I mean, how did you even start to get your head around something like this, where it's not laid out for you? The information you need is not easy to get. Somebody's actively trying to hide it from you, and I know we're. I know that kind of happens in products cases, but this has got to be on a whole nother level. Yeah, this this was a whole nother level. This was, but my role in this was relatively unique. I told Gary that, you know, if you're looking for, um, and Motley Rice and their law firm was already involved in anti-terrorism litigation. Um, They had chosen to go a different route than Gary had in that they had, signed up about 3,000 residents, citizens and residents of Israel. And they had brought a case um, in the United States and it had been consolidated with Gary's case. Okay. With Gary, Gary representing U.S. citizens and Molly Rice representing non-U.S. citizens. Got it. Um, just jumping to the end, Motley Rice's case uh, got dismissed on summary judgment on a very technical issue about whether non-residents could bring cases under the Anti-Terrorism Act. Okay. And um, it worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court, and um, uh, the dismissal was finally affirmed, I think, maybe about four or six months ago. Oh, okay. I didn't uh, realize that. Okay. So, yeah, but their part, they were involved... Uh, um, heavily, and of course, I, I knew Ron for years, and Joe Rice, and Mike Elster, and Jody Flowers, and they're all very close friends of mine, and good people, and uh, um, worked with them on this part because they did have some U.S. citizens as clients as well that they passed over to us to 
uh, represent on, on the U.S. side of the, the case, but they assisted in trial, and Mike and Jody both participated in the trial. Got and, it. Um, but make, uh, to, to answer your question and to make sort of a long story short, I told Gary early on that, you know, if you're looking for somebody that is a discovery lawyer that can work on this case um, seven days a week between now and trial, um, you know, you need to find somebody else. That's not me. My docket's too heavy, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not the kind of person that can devote that kind of time to this case. But if you're looking for somebody that will actually try the case, you tell me, you you walk it through the minefields, and you get it set for trial. And when you get it set for trial, I will clear the, the deck, and I will come, and I will spend whatever time it takes to learn what you think I need to learn right. in order to um, try the case. And Got so it. I just set aside about six months before trial and uh, spent, you know, six months just working on this case, getting wow. ready for trial. Wow. Um, so, so Tab, I want to talk a little bit about just to make sure everybody understands. So the Anti-Terrorism Act, which um, is the vehicle you used for this case, uh, the way I read it, uh, it, it basically uh, allows U.S. citizens who have been the victims of international terrorism, and that's a, I guess, a hotly contested or defined word uh, term, uh, they can then recover damages, and not only damages, but they get threefold their damages plus the cost of going to court is the way I read it. it, it can you explain how yeah. that works it, you know, for, the, for the case? Sure. Um, the statute itself includes definitions, uh, including the definition of what international terrorism is. And it's a very broad definition, and the act was created to be interpreted very broadly in favor of victims. Um, material support was defined as any kind of support from letting a designated or known terrorist spend the night with you to you know, giving them $10 on the street uh, to ordinary banking services. And uh, defining the um, scienter aspect of the case was really where a lot of the legal battle um, was fought with the bank obviously taking the position that we had to, we had to prove actual knowledge as opposed to should have known knowledge. And of course, in the Arab bank context, that was not difficult because um, the bank was uh, providing banking services to uh, the top 10 members of Hamas. And everybody knew they were Hamas. I mean, Sheikh Hafeen was probably the best known terrorist in the world at that point in time. And he was... um, he was sort of the, um, well, it was like I told the jury, it would be like J-Lo walking in the local bank in Brooklyn. Everybody would know her. <laughs> and right. rolled him in in wheelchair to the bank. Everybody knew who he was. He was on the front page of the paper. He was the leader of Hamas. Uh, and providing material support um, with knowledge that you're dealing with a designated or known terrorist, and those are buzzwords as well, designated terrorists, uh, 
the U.S. government publishes a list that changes from time to time. The Treasury Department and, and the president designate certain people, and there's a due process process that one can challenge a designation if they so desire. Um, but that list is published and it's provided to commercial people like banks. And um, banks are required to have a filtering system to ensure that they are not dealing with designated terrorists. But the law also said designated or known terrorists. So you could not be on the designated terrorist list, but still be a known terrorist. And if the bank was dealing with a known terrorist, they're guilty. Okay. Is that, I, I saw some reference to the, uh, aus, uh, sorry, the Office of Foreign Asset Control list. Is that the OFAC list? Yeah, that's the OFAC computer software system that back then, of course, it was not as sophisticated as it is today, but basically any time that trans <clears throat> transactions from overseas, but also domestically come in and out of banks, they're all run through the OFAC system to ensure that terrorists and drug dealers are not uh, money laundering in the bank in the banking system. And I take it from what some of what I read about the the case that that part of the defense was saying that the people that they were they were dealing with weren't designated terrorists on that list. Is that was that part of their argument? Uh, well, they had they had sort of a threefold argument. At first, they they, they really took the position that um, the Anti-Terrorism Act did not apply to ordinary and routine banking services. They lost that issue pretty quick. Um, then their fallback argument was that, um, well, Hamas provides uh, humanitarian services to the Palestinians as well as military wing. And we knew that these people were involved in humanitarian activity, but we didn't know which ones of them were actually involved in um, military and terroristic activity. Uh, that was an argument they were permitted to make, and they made it at trial, but obviously unsuccessfully. And um, the, the third argument they made was that we had, from a causation standpoint, we had the burden of following the dollar all the way to proving that the terrorists who walked onto the bus with a bomb attached to his vest, um, was actually carrying the dollar that Arab Bank transferred, you know, which is an impossible. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah. and you know, the statute itself used basically um, the, the old routine tort concept of proximate causation, which was just substantial factor as opposed to but-for causation. In other words, um, the bank wanted to say, but-for our conduct, the bombing occurred. Right. That's our burden of proof. And that would have been impossible for us to prove because, you know, they would have just proved if money had come from somebody else, they still would have bombed. Right. Right. So one of the things that, that I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Hottest, 
those were just the hottest contested uh, issues from a liability standpoint. One of the things that I, I found surprising, and I, you know, and I guess it depends on which terrorist group that you're talking about. Um, you know, one of the things I read was that you know Al Qaeda keeps their um, you know funding you know very very secret. It's it's very hard to to figure out. But the Hamas actually was at least over in that part of the world somewhat open about uh, the fact that they were giving uh, money to. Um, uh, uh, families of um, suicide bombers. Um, and it, it, I even saw a reference, and I was wondering about the evidence of this at trial, but I saw a reference that um, they would run an ad in the, in the local paper saying, you know, if you're a family member of, you know, some person, uh, then go down to Arab Bank and get your, you know, open up an account so you can make a claim for, you know, the money you're, you're entitled to. Is, was that some of the yeah. evidence? Yeah, that was part of the evidence. Part of the evidence was newspaper ads. Uh, part of the evidence was uh, uh, bulletins that were posted, paper bulletins that were posted on the walls and, and columns in various cities in the Palestinian territories and in Gaza. Uh, part of the evidence were documents, internal Excel spreadsheets obtained from the bank, but also from uh, third parties like the uh, Saudi Committee from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia, you know, ironically, given how close Trump says we are to the Saudis, they provided close to $100 million in financing for Hamas to carry out many of these attacks. And um, the, they produced Excel spreadsheets that had names, dates, um, the family members who were, mar they called them martyrs, which you know, in common language translated into terrorists. Right. And, um, and showed the martyr payments being made um, through the bank to the individual family members. There was a rating scheme that, you know, if, um, there were six members of the family, you got X amount of dollars. And, you know, if there were eight members of the family, you got X, Y amount of dollars. And, um, you know, they could, they had to pretty much admit that, they were operating the system of payments for so-called suicide bombers and martyrs that uh, were basically paying death benefits to family members for Palestinians to volunteer to go do this. Yeah, I was going to ask I mean, how does the defense, you know, when they're when they're arguing this case, I mean, how do they defend against uh, that, that, you know, Arab Bank, you know, was holding these accounts and, and the money was running right through to uh, these families did they just say they didn't know what the money was for they claimed that they didn't understand exactly what all of the money was for that they thought it was for humanitarian purposes in many instances and that people were starving and you know they played on the emotions of the palestinians being bullied by the israelis and their poor people dying out there and we were just trying to take care of these families and uh, we didn't have any axe to grind with either party in the Intifada. We were just simply taking care of people for humanitarian reasons, which was obviously not true. Right. So, I, I, I mean, I know you had uh, 596 plaintiffs. One of the cases that I read about um, was a, a man named Steve 
Averbach, is that how you say his last name? That's correct. And and that Steve um, was a, um, I think had been involved in the military in Israel and then was a consultant, uh, somebody who had been sort of highly trained as far as um, uh, in, in security and in um, spotting terrorists and that uh, on this particular morning, I think it was, uh, I'm looking at your list, it, it was the May 2003 um, bombing in uh, of bus number six in Jerusalem, that he was sitting on the bus uh, at a, about 5.30 in the morning, uh, getting ready to go to uh, work, I think, and then he sees this person come on who's, uh, who was dressed as a, um, a, a Hasidic Jew, um, and could see that he was clutching something in his hand, uh, which turned out to be the trigger, and and actually pulled for his uh, weapon to um, actually take this person out. And um, and before he could uh, fire off a round, uh, this uh, uh, suicide bomber detonated himself and and ended up killing a number of people and severely injuring Steve. Um, could you talk a little bit about about his case? Yeah, Steve was the lead plaintiff. And Steve was the first person um, that Gary Osen uh, communicated with about the possibility of a lawsuit over this because uh, Steve had had family members and that uh, brother and other family members that lived in New York and New Jersey, and uh, Steve was living in Israel at the time. But he, he would obviously he and his family members both um, communicated and. Steve had children here in the U.S. and also had remarried and had children in Israel. And um, Steve, as you said, was former military. What really tipped him off to this individual was um, as he looked up and down the individual, he noticed that that this person was dressed uh, like a very conservative Jew, yet he had the wrong shoes on. He had tennis shoes on. And Steve knew that that no Hasidic Jew would ever wear shoes like that. And then as he continued to look around, he noticed something in his hand. And then they made eye contact about the time that Steve went for his gun. And what Steve was best known for was the fact that um, when all of this happened, the bus was still loading people. And... It was only about half full at the time these events took place. So he forced, in other words, the, the uh, suicide bomber to uh, pull the trigger early before the bus was completely full. And so he was given credit for probably saving just as many lives as were taken in that particular bombing. Wow. Right. And, and yeah, because the, the idea was to wait till the bus got to basically, I, I don't remember the area of Jerusalem, but it was basically the heart of Jerusalem where that if that had detonated there, it would have uh, killed many more people. So Steve was a, was a hero. I mean, he had saved a number of lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Steve passed away shortly before trial and uh, never did get to participate in trial. Gosh. Um, his wife obviously did, and his children did. How did that work? Um, you know, in terms of with the with the 
bifurcation of liability and damages, how much did you get into things like the the specific plaintiffs and the specific attacks and their families in the in the liability in the yeah in the liability phase? Well, we had to prove the facts of each attack. Okay. In in much detail, we had to prove, you know, the where, when, how, why, um, and the for circumstances. All, for the all 24? 24 attacks. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We had to prove all of that because we had to prove who who um, actually carried out the attack and how it was carried out. Got it. So we had to prove that as part of the liability case. Now, we were permitted to put on uh, some surviving victims to testify about their eyewitness account of what transpired, mm-hmm. but we were not permitted to put on evidence purely aimed at you know, proving the severe nature of the attacks and how many people we could we could prove how many people died but we couldn't put on pain and suffering and things of that nature we could only go into the details of each attack got it and how long did that how long did that take i mean how long was the was the liability phase the liability phase lasted almost two months and um our expert that I walked through all 24 attacks. He was on the witness stand for about two weeks, probably. Wow. Oh, wow. And we just took them, you know, in chronological order and basically went through each attack in minute detail. And what was your, um, uh, what was your, what was your expert like? What was his kind of his background? Our experts were all from Israel except for one we had who was a professor in Washington that had devoted much of his career to the historical um, operation of Hamas and leadership of Hamas. But the actual people we used were the equivalent, the Israeli equivalent of the FBI and the CIA. And the Israelis were very cooperative in allowing us to... um, you know, we, we had to spend a great deal of time explaining to the government who we needed and why we needed them. But they were, you know, they were fully supportive of what we were doing because we have a common goal of stopping the financing of terrorism. Right. And so they, they, they were very willing to provide whatever we needed. If we needed the investigating police officers from the bombing at the Pizza Hut, um, they provided those people, made them available to us. Oh, they wow. gave us investigation reports. You know, they gave us the, um, in many instances, we had the interrogation transcripts. We had the criminal trials of some people that, you know, we put into evidence the criminal transcripts and the convictions. Um, wow. And then we also had experts who proved the connection between these people and Hamas. Oh my gosh, you must have just had like thousands of exhibits. Was it in the thousands? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was probably in the tens of thousands. Oh my, oh my gosh. It was, it was a it, lot of paper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. And then I was just thinking, you know, as you're talking about that, you know, walking, you know, an expert through for two weeks on the stand, I mean, 
from a defense perspective, I mean, what, what do they get up and do on cross? Do they try and take all of that apart, or how long did they cross-examine you know, They probably cross-examine him for a couple of days, but, um, you know, it's not the way I would have done it, but right. the way they did it was they attacked um, – they took one or two attacks and they tried to pick apart, you know, they tried to pick weak, our weakest cases out of 24 and try to make those suspect. And I guess the thought was that by making them suspect, you make all of them suspect. Right. But some of these, you know, the great majority, 98% of these were just slam dunks. I mean, we had, criminal convictions of the bomb maker in, you know, probably 70% of these, some guy in prison who, you know, gives a confession that he was the bomb maker and told us exactly how he went about finding the suicide bombers and what they did to prepare. And of course, you know, these people have a policy of um, their suicide bombers would uh, always make a video the day before the event. And it was basically a confession video saying, you know, praise Allah and uh, we're going to a better place and we're going to have whatever it is, forget the number now, 65 virgins or <laughs> whatever it is that, that they're promised in, in the Holy Land. And um, so, you know, in many instances, we had video confessions of, from the actual suicide bombers. Uh, all dressed in their Hamas green and with the Hamas flag behind them. And, uh, you know, so they really didn't have a defense to most of this. Right. Right. And it's, it sounded like, at least from the, the some of the stuff I read, that the, the experts that they put up, at least one notable expert uh, got caught, uh, I mean, basically saying the exact opposite of what she had written before. Yeah, all of their experts were, uh, I mean, they were pretty much scraping the bottom of the barrel to, to find people that would defend Hamas. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one lady you're referencing was from, uh, I want to say, either London or Amsterdam, someplace like that. And she had written a book and uh, she got caught in cross-examination uh, saying something just 180 degrees opposite of what she said in the book. And it was a critical point. It was just not a simple point. It was a critical point about the organization itself and how it functioned. Yeah, I think if I, if what I saw is that she was trying to tell the jury that the Islamic Society of Gaza wasn't affiliated with Hamas. And she had specifically written in her book that, you know, you know, Islamic Society of Gaza and other Hamas groups, you know, something to that effect. Yeah. I mean, it was that blatant. Yeah. Yeah, the charities, that sort of brings in the, the charities. There are a lot of different charities that were involved in the evidence. And some of those charities operated in the United States and some of those in Europe and some of them directly in uh, Gaza and the West Bank. And the charities were all set up as fronts for terrorism you know, they provided schools for the kids and they provided humanitarian activities. But, you know, after five o'clock, they became part of the military team. Right. So I, one of the points she was trying to make in her testimony was the charities are all humanitarian only. 
and she had already written something completely contrary. Right, right, exactly. Um, you, you would think that her, uh, you know, lawyers would have had her better prepared for that, but, um, you know, things happen in trial. They do. Um, so I wanted to talk a, a little bit about your discovery in this case, because, you know, one thing, and Yvonne has already talked about it, um, you know, how hard it would be to sort of link all of this together and just to get the discovery you needed to prove your case. But in, in this case, not only sounds like you were able to get the discovery, but then um, you were able uh, to get sanctions against uh, Arab Bank for withholding discovery. Can you talk a little bit about the, the sanctions that, uh, that were levied against them? This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Sure. Uh, one of the key sources of information was a criminal trial that had previously occurred in Dallas, Texas. It was a criminal trial that was brought against a charitable organization, an Islamic charitable organization, that was accused of having provided, uh, basically been a front company for terrorism. And I, I can't remember the name of the criminal case. It was tried in federal court in Dallas, and it was actually tried twice. Uh, the first time there was a mistrial and then they came back and tried and convicted everybody. For people after uh, working with the government extensively, we were able to get our hands on the entire transcript and all of the government's records that they had managed to collect, which gave us a gold mine of evidence about Arab Bank's role. And Arab Bank was not a party to the criminal case, but Arab Bank had been subpoenaed by the federal government to provide documents in that case, and they willingly gave those documents to the Department of Justice. We obtained those documents, but then when we asked for those documents, they refused to give those to us claiming bank secrecy under Jordanian law. Yeah. The judge, the judge overruled their objection, 
um, ordered them to produce the information we were requesting. Uh, they continued to refuse, so she sanctioned them, and they took that up to the Second Circuit and on a mandamus, and they were rejected and sent back down, and the case was set for trial. And part of the sanctions included a um, jury instruction on spoliation and their refusal to produce the records that we had wanted and requested. And it gave, uh, the court gave a, what amounts to a permissive adverse inference instruction that you're not required to assume that they were concealing evidence. You are permitted to do so if there's other evidence in the record supporting the intent to conceal evidence. Right. And of course, the wild card was the fact that we already uh, had records showing they had bank accounts for um, um, probably the top 10 members of Hamas. And they were refusing to give us those bank records, which would have proven, it was, at least our argument was, if we had the bank records that were they were refusing to give us, we could match those bank records up with payments on the day before each of these attacks. And we couldn't do that because we didn't have all of the bank records. Got it. And that's where the big fight over spoliation and discovery was. Right. right. And so, and, and again, you, you did a good job with, with an adverse inference. Basically, the jury is told that if, the, if a party is withholding evidence, then you can assume that that evidence is supporting the claim of the other party, that the, um, it's, it's supporting whatever uh, is neg the negative inference from that. Um, I have so many questions about... What, what I mean, I have so many questions, period, but I have so many questions about what jury selection was like in this case. Oh, how yeah. long it took, how many people you needed. Well, you know, this is a, it was a fascinating, um, Judge Kogan, Brian Kogan, um, came into the case uh, very, very late in the process. The case was transferred from our original judge to senior status and became the chief judge of the Eastern District. It was transferred over to for purposes of trial. And um, one of the brightest people I've ever been around and, and he, he, could, he could digest everything very quickly. And the first time he appeared before us, it was like he had been involved in the case from the outset. He knew everything that had transpired. He did the names of Witnesses, he knew everything. It's almost like he'd been studying for a year on the case. Wow. Um, but he, he was very, very impressive. And, uh, you know, it's a sort of an unwieldy process, as you might imagine, um, because of the concerns over 9 11 right. in the New York area. Uh, plus, Brooklyn has a huge population of Muslims. Um, but there's also a large Jewish population. Right. And you can imagine the explosive issues that had to be dealt with. And so basically the judge started with about 200 potential jurors. And he told us to both go spend two days and he would allow us 
to each strike 50 jurors apiece wow. for whatever reason we wanted. We didn't have to tell him why. Just mark through the 50 you don't like, and he marked through the 50 you don't like, and then we'll take the next 100 and we'll pick the jury from those 100. Wow. When, when you struck those, uh, were you doing that the way, you know, we would do a peremptory challenge going back and forth uh, with the other side, or did you just do your 50 and they did their 50? No, we just took them back to the hotel and did research on everybody, and we marked off the 50 that we thought were potentially the worst jurors to sit on this case. Uh, Bank did the same thing. He marked off 100 jurors. He called the other 100 in. They had to answer a very detailed questionnaire. And then we were allowed to do routine, what I would call routine, ordinary jury selection process. That, you know, we got additional questions if we had them. We got preemptory challenges. And then we also got four cause challenges. And we picked a jury from that group. Wow. So when, when you exchange your list with, is there any overlap in your strikes? Yeah, there actually was, um, which didn't really surprise me because, you know, some of the people we would be nervous about um, in, in that circumstance, you would not know exactly how they would feel. Right. But they could feel either this way or that way. If they felt this way, it helped us. If they felt that way, it didn't. The bank had a lot of the same concerns over people. And so there was quite a bit of overlap. It's got to be crazy. I mean, the, uh, I mean, first of all, all the significant issues with 9-11 and terrorism and religion, oh, yeah. but then on top of that, and I, I mean, I know this isn't the only case that takes a long time to try, but it's, you know, you're asked, you're looking for jurors to sit on a case for six months. I imagine there's hardship stuff left and right. And yeah, and he did, you know, he did all of the hardship stuff right off the bat. Okay. He just, he, he did that as part of the questionnaire. And if you've got a hardship, you tell me what your hardship is because this case is, and he gave him a specific date. He, this case is going to be over with by, you know, I don't remember what the date now was, but it was about two and a half months down the road. And he said, it's going to, it's going to take that long to try. We need people that are going to be committed to this. And if you've got any problem, you need to tell me about it. Got it. Wow. That is just, that just seems like such a bear to even <laughs> pick the jury. I, I feel like I'd yeah. be on vacation after picking the jury. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it sounds like he handled it in a really, uh, I mean, just great way, you know, knowing with all these complex issues sitting out there. The judge. Yeah. Wow. How was, um, how was the jury in terms of like, were you ever, you know, having one, you know, having an expert on the stand for two weeks. I mean, were you worried about them sticking with it? Were you worried about their focus or did they seem, you know, to take it as, as seriously as the situation required? Well, in, in my experience, this was not the longest trial I had ever had. I had, um, I guess back about 03 or 04, 05, something like that. I tried a, um, I tried a class action case for a bunch of lawyers against Ford in California involving the Ford Explorer. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of basically what amounted to diminution in value 
of the vehicle for failing to disclose the true nature of the rollover problem associated right. with the accident. And we tried that case for about four and a half months. Um, okay. And I not tried the long cases before, because you're trying cases in California. You know, you, a two-week trial becomes six weeks easy. Right. Uh, right. Simply because, you know, the judge takes Fridays off and, you know, you start at 10 and you end at 3 and you take an hour and a half for lunch. You don't get much work done during the day in some courts. And so short cases can turn into long cases. And um, you just I went in knowing that, you know, these people are going to have bad days and they're going to have good days. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are going to have bad days on the same day, but, you know, they may have bad days and different days. There's no way to keep their attention 100% of the time, but you have to keep their attention, you know, at certain points. They're most attentive early in the morning. So, you know, let's always try to do important things early in the morning. Um, never let something drag on and on and on. Be as quickly as, you know, move as quickly as we can. Um, Show video um, in small clips. Don't videotape it last more than 20 or 30 minutes because everybody will be asleep right. uh, after the first 30 minutes, regardless of how spicy the testimony is. Right. And then you just, you know, you just try to stick with the same theme and try to make a very strong opening statement so that going in, they understand what the real issues are in the case and don't get sidetracked with a bunch of side issues. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I tried a uh, case up in New Jersey that took about five weeks. That's the longest trial I've had. And, um, you know, part of our plan was to try and always at the beginning of the week, you know, put a couple of you know, very strong sort of, you know, exciting witnesses. And then at the end of the week, you know, something that could end very strong, exciting. That way, you know, even if sure. for some reason we lost some people, you know, for a, a day or so in, the, in between, we were always beginning the week and ending the week strong. Uh, that way they had the weekend yeah. and didn't think about, you know, how the case was going. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, just have to understand and realize that, you know, you're just not going to be able to keep everybody's attention all of the time. We've got a job to do. Uh, sometimes that job is tedious and boring, but, you know, we've got to do our job. But you just have to make it as interesting as you possibly can and not get overly concerned about the time and how bored people are getting or might right. be getting. And right. If you start worrying about that, you're going to worry yourself to death. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's you know, why that's why I ask because that that's my style worrying worrying about yeah. uh, stuff I can't yeah. control. That's my specialty. Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. You know, one thing that I found is you know, uh, and this is what I, I tell lawyers all the time is you know we, when they worry about whether or not you're over trying a case or under trying a case or using too much technology or not enough, is you know most of the times these juries they have no idea what a case looks like. So whatever you're doing is what they think is what's typical. Um, so, you know, don't get too worried about, you know, how you do it. I mean, do it in the way that you think is right. And, uh, you know, and obviously a way that you think is strong, but, uh, but they're not going to sit there and say, oh, well, they're not using enough technology or they're using too much technology. They're not going to do that because they don't, they, they don't sit through trials every week. Right. No, they don't. And, you know, the other thing I think 
we as trial lawyers have to always keep in mind is that uh, uh, a lot of times in a long trial or in a short trial, either one, uh, jurors may not be paying attention to every word that comes out of the witness's mouth, but the one thing you can guarantee is that they're always watching you. Right. Right. And that <laughs> and your the client. most important thing, the most important thing you can do, and it's something you can control, is be consistent in how you deal with things. Don't have bad days where you're in a bad mood. Be yeah. yourself and be consistent twenty four seven throughout that trial and be disciplined enough to be that person you are because you can control that and people are watching you. That is, And even if they're not listening to the evidence, they're watching you. Yeah, that's right. That is such a great point. I feel like I definitely, all the things I worried about and I didn't think about myself at all in my first trial. And then when we talked to the jury after, one of them asked why I never wore heels. <laughs> exactly. That's the second type like, of stuff they noticed. Yeah. I was like, okay, so yeah. even my shoes matter. Good to know. So, so Tab, I know we've talked for this about this case for a while, but I wanted to know in such a complex case like this, was there, um, you know, in, in I think you maybe already talked about, was there an overall theme you tried to strike with the jury or in a, was there a way that you were trying to just keep it simple? I mean, we always talk about, you know, keep these cases simple. How, how did you go about that in this case? Well, you know, there, there's multiple themes in a case like this, but you know, the, the overarching theme, of course, was knowledge. Right. And the, uh, the, the bank had knowledge. They knew exactly who they were dealing with. Uh, they knew exactly what they were doing. And they just didn't think they were going to get caught doing what they were doing. And um, that was sort of the overarching theme because that was the critical issue in the case. I, you know, never thought we would have any problem whatsoever proving Hamas did it. Right. I mean, you know, once you play a couple of videotapes of the suicide bomber talking what he's going to do tomorrow, uh, you know, that part of the case is pretty well over. It, the issue is, did these guys really know that they were moving money for terrorists? And so that was the heart of the theme. But, you know, there were, there were other sub-themes throughout that, had to be pushed, you know, causation had to be pushed. We had to be able to explain the difference between but-for causation and a substantial factor in the outcome in common language so that people could understand uh, what that was. And you don't just do that in closing argument or opening statement. You, you figure out creative ways to ask the right questions to the right people during trial to bring out um, the key elements of causation. Uh, that was an important theme throughout. And then, of course, you know, fighting terrorism. Um, the overall theme of fighting terrorism in, for this particular case was that um, you don't stop terrorism with bullets and bombs. We can spend billions and trillions of dollars blowing things up in the world. But if you really want to stop terrorism, take the money away from them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, that's, that's mm -hmm. extremely effective. How, um, 
Tab, how many months did you sleep for when this trial was over? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, actually, I started another trial two weeks oh. after this case. Oh, over. my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to, but <laughs> the judge found out I was out of trial, and he said, well, why can't you start a trial? Oh, and my I gosh. Said, okay, I, you know, that's fine. Whatever, So the question is, in that second trial, did you ever accidentally refer to Hamas or Arab Bank? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it, it, once, once we got there and started, it settled. Oh, my so gosh. Actually, have to didn't actually have to get very far into that one. But, oh, that's uh, good. Two weeks. For me. Another yeah. trial two weeks went after that is that is just crazy. Yeah, exactly. But it was it was an automotive case, so you know I could could probably have done it in my sleep if I needed to. Yeah. Man, so it, I I noticed that it looked like some of the the defense arguments that they were making in this trial was that you know kind of twofold as far as the businesses is one is you don't want a business deciding who is and isn't a terrorist because then it's going to affect everybody's life because they're going to you know label you a terrorist and all of a sudden you can't do regular things and then the the other argument seemed like was that if you sue one business who gives you know who's allegedly given help to a terrorist then you're you know what business hasn't because you know that's how terrorists do things that was that i mean obviously it, it wasn't at the end of the day effective but uh, how did you counter those types of arguments well, you know, most of those arguments that they made, in fact, all of the arguments they made were counterintuitive when you really examined them right? and you really thought about them and, and you applied common sense to what they were saying. For instance, the argument about, you know, you don't want businesses deciding that. Well, that's like saying you don't want police deciding who the suspects are. Right. You right. know, you have an obligation as a business to police. Um under the know the customer concept in the banking community, they have a duty, they have an obligation, they have your money in the bank. They're supposed to know who they're doing business with. And so, you know, they're like the police in the context of banking services. And it, it just makes no sense. And they had some other arguments too that just didn't make any sense either. They tried to pitch the argument that the, um, that Arab Bank was not sophisticated and that they had to use donkeys to carry paper <laughs> from one bank to another at times. And it, it was just, it was downright silly, some of the arguments that they came up with. And, um, you know, they, they even brought, they brought about 15 um, employees from the West Bank to testify which I thought was a real mistake on their part because these people didn't have any concept of what the judicial system was about or the jury system was about. And of course, none of them spoke good enough English to testify without a translator. And you can imagine uh, how receptive people are to uh, listening to an Arabic translation uh, in a jury trial. Right. Uh, especially after 9-11. Right. And right. so, you know, it just, it was not very smart. I thought, you know, I thought that should brought the bank president and had him testify and 
do as much as they could with some of their, you know, guys who were technologically capable. But on the other hand, uh, I can see the thought process. And the thought process was, we can't put these guys up there on the stand. They'll just butcher them. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, was, it was a hard case for them to defend, but, uh, right. you know, it, it was also a, a groundbreaking in a lot of ways because, you know, we've got a lot of rulings from the Second Circuit. Uh, we've got a lot of district court level opinions that really created a um, uh, a nice collection of anti-terrorism law for others to use now going forward, and others are using it. Uh, I think at last count, there are over 250 pending anti-terrorism cases in the United States now against corporations. Wow. Uh, all all framed, much like, you know, from the Arab Bank case. And it's changed business completely. It's changed the world, banking business completely, um, with banks uh, cutting people off, banks uh, canceling accounts, banks putting in place uh, very sophisticated forms of OFAC controls now. and. Um, it scared the banking industry to death. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it has to be, you know, I asked you that question in the beginning about was there any kind of, you know, template or roadmap that you could use for a case like this? And it's because that to me sounds, you know, so intimidating. But, you know, the flip side of that is you had the chance to really to do it that the right way and, you know, create some good law and a good roadmap for people to come after you. Absolutely. And we've got another case now that's uh, actually we have a couple of different cases. We've got one up in the Seventh Circuit and one in the Second Circuit. Um, both are cases where we represent literally hundreds of U.S. military um, families who their kids were either killed or injured in Iraq during the peacekeeping mission right and iran was creating the ieds they were manufacturing the ieds and they were training the um, shia militia to carry out these attacks on u.s military and there's about seven world um operating banks standard chartered barclays um, HSBC, um, there's about five, five more that are defendants in these cases, and all of those banks have already entered into deferred prosecution agreements with the Department of Justice and paid billion-dollar fines for illegally moving money for Iran during that period of time. Oh, and my gosh. Of course, the theory in the lawsuit is that that these banks are providing material support to known terrorists, all of whom were designated terrorists. And these terrorists carried out these attacks and these banks are financially responsible for the damages caused to our US military people. And we probably represent about a thousand of those now. Wow. Total. Wow. And, yeah. 
the, the case in the Eastern District of New York is called Freeman versus Standard Chartered and others. And we just recently got a 120-page um, order from the court ruling on all of the bank's various motions to dismiss and uniformly denied every one of them. Oh, that's wow. fantastic. That, yeah, that's awesome. And you're talking about some, some really deserving plaintiffs and some compelling plaintiffs. Uh, you know, we've got some of these guys. We've got a colonel that, you know, lost two legs and an arm. Um, hmm. Just horrible, horrible injuries. Yeah. God. Man, that's that is uh, great work. I mean, you know, it, uh, I feel like you know all of what we do is important work, but this case, you know, really is just has uh, profound implications and um, and is fantastic work. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, Tab. You know, so the uh, from what I understand, the law has changed some since the way since when you tried that case. It, for instance, uh, one thing I noticed is was that the aiding and abetting claim against the the bank was dismissed. Um, but now it looks like that that part of the law has been changed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we um, we never really pursued the aiding and abetting. There was a really bad case decision out of the Second Circuit that pretty much did away with aiding and abetting. Um, at least in, for primary liability, you could still pursue it for secondary liability under some circumstances. Um, and we corrected that. We managed to get a bill passed in Congress called JASTA. And JASTA basically is a co-conspirator liability um, that replaces the old aiding and abetting law and now makes all of the aiders and abettors equally responsible. So now we've, we filled that gap uh, by getting JASTA passed. So now we can we can assert JASTA claims in these cases as well for those who are aiding and abetting. Got it. Yeah, that's really good work. Uh, this, um, yeah, another thing we get done at Congress was we we managed to get the statute of limitations extended on these claims from um, I think the original act was ten years or maybe it was eight years from the attack. And we've got it extended out to 20 years. And the actually, I think uh, most of these claims that we're litigating right now um, occurred back in, you know, the early 2000 timeframe. And I know the first statute of limitations comes up on December the 31st of this year for some of those claims that we've already filed, of course, but, you know, some of those attacks will just now start expiring. So it's given everybody an opportunity to have their day in court if they want it. Right. Wow. Well, again, like I said, I mean, this has been fantastic work. I mean, not just the case itself, but the work that you've done uh, since with your co-counsel and, and uh, it really just uh, important work and, and, uh, and great work. So, um, is is there anything else that, that you want to make sure that we know about that case tab? I mean, like I said, I mean, it, it really just important work that you're doing, but um, anything else that we haven't talked about? Oh, there's a lot we haven't talked about. <laughs> yeah, that's, sure. probably, yeah, exactly. 
That probably covers about everything we can cover in this phone call. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we really appreciate your time and and thank you for it's my it. My pleasure. And uh, just thank so, you for inviting me. Absolutely. And, and to remind our listeners, uh, we've been talking to Tab Turner. Uh, his law firm is Turner and Associates. And if you want to look up Tab, he's at www.tturner.com. Uh, Tab, again, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. My thank you, Tab. Thank you. I, I feel like I need a, a nap just talking about how busy you've been. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I need to sleep for a yeah. couple of days. <laughs> thank you, Tab. All right, you guys. All right, take care. Right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.